Does greater economic freedom lead to more babies? Today on The Curious Task, I'm speaking with Clara Piano. Welcome to The Curious Task, a podcast where we talk about politics, philosophy, and economics from a classical liberal perspective. Today, my guest is Clara Piano. Clara is an assistant professor of economics at Austin P. State University and holds a PhD in economics from George Mason University. So, Clara, as you may know, when uh, we do this podcast, we like to ask a question and sort of take it wherever it leads us. So, does greater economic freedom lead to more babies? Yes. So, first of all, thank you so much uh, for having me on the podcast. Really happy to be here. Uh, To answer your question, I am going to start with the word maybe. So, um, my co-author Lyman Stone and I have a recent working paper out that asks this question And um, we really are the first to empirically study um, the relationship between economic freedom and the fertility gap, which just for your listeners, the fertility gap is that difference between um, kind of survey responses stating desired fertility. So how many um, uh, children ideally um, someone would like to have and then actual fertility rates or the total fertility rate. And we do find pretty, um, I think, convincing evidence that there is a really strong relationship between economic freedom. Uh, States with more economic freedom have lower fertility, or excuse me, narrower fertility gaps, so smaller fertility gaps, um, which just in everyday terms means that um, states with kind of more choice in the economic sphere, um, whether you're thinking about government size, tax policy, regulation, labor market freedom, et cetera, um, women and, and couples living in those states um, are able to achieve their desired family size more, more often um, than compared with states with less freedom. Great. I have a question on that. But first, for listeners who may not be familiar with this idea, can you explain a little bit about how they measure, how researchers measure that fertility gap? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to measure it. And it is a new feature, especially in the economic literature. Um, and we think a really powerful metric. And so um, uh, Lyman, my co-author, actually spent a lot of time thinking about this and developed his own novel approach. So I'll talk about kind of the standard approach, which um, you can find these questions in a lot of surveys around the world, will typically ask women, um, not men usually, because paternities can sometimes be hard to hard to gauge there, but it's fairly certain with, with women. Um, so they'll ask women, um, ideally, Um, how many children would you like to have? Or what is your ideal family size? Or what is your desired family size? Um, Another form of the question that actually gives you a pretty different gap will be your intentions. So how many children do you intend to have? How many did you plan to have? Um, You know, sort of as a compromise with reality um, approach. And then um, we compare this with the total fertility rate. So that's not usually um, the exact fertility, right? That's not going to be the exact fertility of the women who are asked about their preferences, but it's actually a prediction of their fertility. That's pretty good. Um, and so a couple of innovations that we make um, are specifically with the question. We ask um, actually women to rank their happiness um, over different family sizes. So zero to six children kind of give us a number and we calculate a weighted average. And we really like this as, as people who are economic economically trained um, because it gives us a more granular um, approach to kind of a demand curve for children um, in a way that just saying, you know, hey, what does your ideal family size look like? Uh, that could pick up a lot of things like cultural norms, you know, um, just what do I feel like, you know, the survey um, a questioner is wanting me to say um, what, you know, a lot of other things. So um, this is a novel approach, um, again, uh, that's part of our paper. And then we also are the first, um, to the extent of my knowledge, to measure it in the U.S. states at such a local level in the U.S. Usually um, measures will look um, at the country level because that's where just the data is. And so this is um, the data we have in fertility preferences is actually part of an ongoing survey. So this is the first to use that data, and we really hope to do more with it in the future. Great. Can you tell me a little bit about the places that have the, the biggest fertility gaps, either countries or states within the United States? Yeah, no, good question. So 
there's quite a bit of variation, but I'll actually start with the global picture because I think this is shocking. This, um, I think a lot of uh, students, especially um, kind of the, the general narrative around population growth and fertility is actually a little bit behind the data here. So on average, the, the women around the globe, right, the average woman, um, globally speaking, actually has fewer children than she desires, taking into account every, you know, every country. And then once you drill down at the country level, um, a lot of highly developed countries actually have pretty, pretty large fertility gaps. So um, there's a paper I'm thinking of that looks at this for Europe and then compares that to the U.S. And actually European countries are kind of doing a lot worse than the U.S. in terms of fertility gaps. They have much larger gaps. Um, the United States is actually situated and, and we focus on, you know, the United States in our paper, but relative to the rest of the economically developed world, we're actually doing pretty okay. Um, we can find um, pretty large gaps, especially in Italy. Uh, Spain is another one, some Eastern European countries. And these are countries that have very low just actual fertility as well. And we don't actually find, you know, two, two different um, fertility preferences. So that generates a very large gap. Um, and then as for the states, we find um, actually our large, we find some pretty large gaps in Rhode Island. Um, I think New York is another one. Um, the average gap um, that we find, which is 0.77 children, um, that is 0.77 children um, on average desired more, right, than, than actually um, a woman is having is Wisconsin. So that kind of, that gives you a middling case, right, the average case when we're drilling down to the U.S. state level. Great. So I'm, of course, familiar with the economic freedom uh, data. A lot of it is done by our friends over at the Fraser Institute. The Cato Institute's also involved in the generation uh, of a lot of that data. And of course, one thing that we see, I think pretty robustly, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, is that economic freedom correlates positively with wealth. Countries that have more economic freedom tend to be wealthier. One thing that I've noticed in my reading in the past year or two is that there's a very clear correlation between wealthy countries and having fewer babies. As countries develop economically, as the people get wealthier, fertility tends to go down. Can you tell me how it is then that something that is correlated with, uh, with both having more babies and with wealth seems to be going against what seems to be quite a robust trend? Yeah, no, excellent insight. Um, it is absolutely true that there's a very strong correlation between um, wealth or economic growth, um, economic prosperity, even things like happiness. Like there's a really strong correlation between kind of a lot of positive, you know, outcomes that we identify, female em employment, female education, and um, economic freedom. And actually a lot of these things, not even just income, but also female education and employment, um, are traditionally thought to lower fertility. They lower fertility. Um, and that's true for a variety of reasons, right? If the more time you spend in school, the, the less time you have, right, to, to have children, things like that. And that's, you know, typically thought actually um, in when you're moving from very low levels of economic freedom um, up a little bit more, um, it's possible to think that actually the fertility gap will narrow, but because women are having fewer children because they're actually having more children than they state that they desire. So that's that's one thing that could be going on. Um, but the other thing that's starting to be found and discussed in the literature on, on family economics, which is really cool, there's this great paper called New Fertility Facts, um, is that actually the relationship has changed at these very high levels of, we might say, economic freedom or just empowerment for women. So um, what's happening now, if you look at a cross-country comparison, there's not actually a negative relationship between income and fertility. Um, and if you look at um, female um, employment and uh, fertility, you actually find a positive relationship. So countries that have more women um, participating in the workforce tend to actually have higher fertility. So what's going on? Um, well, we think that this is a clue for the fact that there's something about these policy environments when you do have, you know, economic freedom um, and a developed economy that's allowing women to um, choose more of what they desire in terms of work and family life, right? So to, to choose both of those things. Um, 
So that's that's one explanation. In our empirical investigation, we of course we have um, estimates that. Um, give you the raw correlation and then also control for income. And we do find that income is is in and of itself sort of associated with a little bit of a larger gap. So there's still, you know, more to investigate there. But basically, it seems that um, we're entering kind of a new phase of development where um, the classic relationship between what sort of like, you know, your substitution, your, excuse me, your substitution effect where um, having more income means that actually you have to sacrifice more income to have children, right? Because you're sacrificing that, that time, those working hours. Now we're wealthy enough where more income can actually mean, um, and, and we have more flexible jobs, for instance, um, where more wealth can mean actually more flexibility, more power, right? To have both family size and career goals. Um, yeah. So does that answer the question? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that we've uh, you know historically had these ideas that wealth leads to fewer babies, that women in the workplace, uh, women being more educated, leads to fewer babies. Um, for those of us who think that uh, babies are wonderful and there should be more of them in the world, this seems like an unfortunate trade-off because, of course, I I want women to be empowered to have the things that make their life meaningful, and babies are one of those things. But they are, for many women, are one of those things. But of course, they are far from the only thing. And so, it's great to hear some at least. Some early findings that maybe that, you know, the trade-off there is not as stark as we thought it was. One thing I think maybe in sort of the background in some of the the papers that you talk about or or when people talk about this is the idea of reproductive choice, that when women are able to choose and control how many babies they have, which of course is true in rich countries today, was not true for much of human history, that women will choose to have fewer babies. Yet you say that there's this sort of thing at the upper end of the income scale where women are actually having, I think, uh, you know, richer women, more educated women are having more children. Do you have any explanations or theories about what's going on there? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's interesting to think about income and and especially with um, sort of reproductive um, choice and technologies even um, are starting to play a role. And basically, at for very, very sort of low income, undeveloped, you know, rural countries, um, uh, for for a while, right, it was plausible to think, right, a lot of the the fertility here and a lot of kind of the choices women are making are maybe not shaped by these forces, right? Access to contraception, for example, right, might be low in these contexts. But that's actually so a lot of the focus of demography and population research. And um, Julian Simon is one of my favorite economists. He was actually working on a project like this um, before he um, sort of had his epiphany moment um, and, and wrote the ultimate resource. But basically, a lot of attention was focused on expanding um, sort of access to contraception and, and things like that for women. Um, but that was many, many years ago. And so now we're actually at a state where, again, the average woman globally is having too few children by her own estimates, right? And I want to really emphasize here that when I'm saying like too few or too many or whatever, I'm trying not, like this isn't normative and this isn't objective, right? These are just using subjective values of survey respondents. And so really, again, trying to let these women speak for themselves. And um, and so now it seems like actually the problem is not access to um, family planning um, per se, but really access to things that enable families right to grow or enable women to achieve their fertility goals in this way. Um, in, in terms of having more children. So, and I should also say something really interesting about the fertility um, preferences questions is you actually find that those are the strongest predictors of actual fertility um, that we have. So even con- current contraceptive use or marital status, those don't as strongly predict um, sort of the behavior of, of women um, as much as they're stated desires themselves, right? So um, I think that that's, it's an important um, measure from that perspective as well. Um, I also wanted to add one last thing is it is also true though, at least this is true in the data that um, has been presented from Europe, that education um, tends to increase fertility gaps for women. And so there's definitely something going on where, um, yes, it's super wonderful, absolutely wonderful 
um, that women are able to achieve high levels of education, right? In the States, we actually have an education gap. We have more women, right, graduating with their their bachelors. Um, But this actually means that, um, or we find this empirical relationship that women who have higher levels of education um, do have larger fertility gaps. So it's this weird problem that's actually kind of concentrated um, for those types of groups, which actually led us into asking our question and I think sort of relates nicely to some gender economics findings about flexibility in work schedules. Great. You mentioned Julian Simon there. I think some of our listeners will be familiar with uh, Julian Simon's intellectual rival, Paul Ehrlich, who, of course, wrote a book, uh, The Population Bomb, uh, very concerned in the 1960s and 70s about the problem of overpopulation uh, in the globe. So, you know, you've mentioned the fact that uh, your measurement is concerned with women's own goals about how many children they would like to have, and they're having fewer than that. But could someone say, well, even if women would like to have more uh, more babies because of these overpopulation concerns, maybe it's a good thing for all of us collectively if they have fewer babies than they would like to have. What would your response to that be? No, great. So I, I have gotten this question. And um, I think it is as just as from a research perspective, like as an economist, I think it is a grave mistake to say that there is over or underpopulation. I don't think that economists have that knowledge. Um, I think that couples have that knowledge for themselves, but it's very hard to look from an outside perspective and just without knowing someone and say, oh, you should have X number of children. I think that that leads down a very dangerous road, to be honest. Um, but it's done, and, and that's fine. So how would I respond? Well, a couple of ways. If you want to talk, and this is kind of what Julian Simon did. He he sort of just accepted the terms of the debate, and he said, okay, well, let's say that there is some sort of optimal population or there is, you know, there's a really uh, something that we should aim at in terms, right, of population size. Um, and he said, well, the data actually doesn't support the hypothesis, that there are too many people, even if you look at things like environmental concerns, even if you look at things beyond economic growth. So he would start, and economists really have accepted this insight, I think, right? Population is good for economic growth under the right institutional framework. Um, and that that's not hard to get, right? Under just simple rule of law, some property rights, right? A little bit of economic freedom. You do find that more population means more ideas, means more innovation, and means higher economic growth, higher standards of living. So that Malthusian idea, right, that population actually reduces resources per person just tends not to be true, especially today when we have, um, you know, things like innovation and entrepreneurship and institutions that allow for that. Um, But then the second move is also to say, right, a lot of these people, I think, who are concerned about overpopulation are are rightfully concerned about things like stewardship of resources, um, you know, thinking about living standards of of future generations, thinking about, you know, care of the environment. And so um, we can go further and say, well, how does economic growth then, right, if population increases economic growth, how does that relate to CO2 emissions or other sort of environmental outcomes? And there, I think the data is clear again, um, that economic growth is actually related to better care for the environment, right? Because when you're in a survival mode, you know, it's really hard to care about polluting the river when you just need to drink water and you need, you're getting through day by day. But once societies become wealthy enough, it tends to be that um, sort of, you know, conservation is a luxury good. And so they tend to try to clean the air more, right, clean up the sidewalk, things like that. Great. So I think you've been quite careful and deliberate in some of our conversations so far about the uh, making sure that it's understood that you're making a more of a positive, a descriptive case than a normative value-based discussion. Um, I'm not sure what the numbers are in the U.S., but in Canada, our national population is actually growing quite quickly. We passed 40 million people earlier this year. Um, uh, The population has grown for the past 10, 15 years quite a lot, and, and looks like it will continue to grow. But of course, our fertility rates in Canada are, are quite low. I think we're at about 1.6 uh, in terms of our national fertility rate. So this is driven by immigration. And I'm wondering if you would you know, be interested in making the case if I were to say, well, hey, you know, we're getting population growth. This is driving economic development and growth and things like that. 
maybe it's causing some issues around housing and things like that, but generally it's good and it's being driven by immigration. Should we therefore, as a sort of, you know, as, as the country of Canada, should we be concerned about our low fertility rates? Yeah, no, this is a, a good question. So for countries like the United States and like Canada, um, and you can see this reflected in this, the, the policy really, and then the policy debates, um, these countries really actually don't need to be too concerned quite yet. And the reason for that is, is just as you said, immigration, right? There are two ways to increase your population. One is have more babies. Two is allow more Im- immigrants to enter the country. Um, of course, that second option is not a worldwide option, right? So I think just from a, you know, if you care about individual flourishing, right, you still care that the global, you know, average fertility gap is positive, right? That that women aren't having as many children as they desire. Um, but if you're looking kind of from a policy perspective and even an economic, purely economic perspective, um, immigration can be a really great option. And there's actually some positive effects that immigration has on fertility. So I'll actually draw out two. The first one is that immigrants tend to, to bring over their, their home country um, fertility rates. So at least for the first generation, you'll see um, immigrants having kind of more children, right, than the, the native-born women. And then the second effect, which I actually find really interesting and, and that I hope more work is done um, to, to study this, is that um, because immigration tends to bring in um, just, you know, again, from language barriers to credential barriers, all of these things, more low-skilled labor, um, this actually translates into lower prices for childcare or other things that you can outsource, housekeeping, right? Other things that um, economize, right, on, on women's time um, that might have been spent on these tests, but now doesn't have to, and they can spend time having children or working or, or however they value using their time. So that also has a beneficial effect on fertility. There's been a paper that shows that when a city level immigration increases, actually um, high income women who are typically able to afford childcare and outsourcing housekeeping, things like that, tend to increase their fertility. So um, there actually might be this nice kind of, I think, complementary relationship um, between these two items. But just back to your main point, um, I think the countries, and we see this with China right now, um, I think we're going to see this um, maybe to a lesser extent with India, um, but countries who have um, sort of less of an offer to make to immigrants in terms of, you know, hey, the American dream, right, type of stuff. It's called the American dream for a reason. Um, They are going to have a much harder time with having low fertility rates. And so you see a lot more aggressive policy. Um, An example historically of this is the Soviet Union. I think we're going to see pretty aggressive policy from these types of countries moving forward that are not able to attract immigrants as easily, um, but who also do have low or below replacement fertility rates. That's interesting. So I, this is not in the subject of the paper that we're sort of specifically discussing. However, I have been looking at some stuff lately on how effective countries are when they try to induce higher fertility through public policy measures. Can you tell us a little bit about the current state of the research on that area? Yes. Yeah. So it is um, very difficult uh, to design a policy that is going to move fertility a lot. Um There have been a lot of creative attempts, so we can talk about some specific examples, um, because uh, fertility is such a multifaceted thing, right? It depends on marriage markets. It depends on biological fertility, right? It depends on a lot of different um, kind of uh, constraints, frankly. And so um, there are a lot of ways to approach it. Um, But in general, what we see is that paying women, the most common route is would be sort of like giving baby bonuses or um, tax breaks, right, to women who have um, passed a certain number of children, which again, goes back, this is a very long history. Um, The Soviet Union tried this, um, and other countries have in the past, but we see this like in Hungary today, for instance. Um, These have a small effect on fertility, um, and but but not something, right, that's really going to push a country far above replacement. Um, And the reason for this is actually pretty easy to understand. When you think about the cost of fertility, the costs are very, very high. They they really are just high. The benefit is, I would argue, you know, even greater in a lot of cases, but the costs are extremely high. And so um, it's kind of financially unfeasible to sort of make up all of that cost, although it is absolutely true, right, that 
that it's a very large burden that parents undertake, but it's just, you know, financial constraints at the state level are going to make it so that you just can't possibly, right, um, supplement, you know, my income, right, enough to make me want to quit my job, right, and stay home to, to raise children, for instance, um, full time. Um, so I think that that's really one of the reasons. And then I think the second reason is also um, actually more hopeful, which is that um, there are subgroups of the population. These tend to be like really religious subgroups um, who just are their benefit, their subjective benefit from having a child because of maybe an eternal perspective or other things is so high that even though costs are very high, they continue to have very f- high fertility, right? So five, six, seven, eight, nine children. Um, and that these groups are actually very responsive to very low cost policy interventions. So some of these things like Georgia, uh, the country, for instance, has uh, targeted some of these um, policies to their religious population by um, having their the patriarch of the Orthodox Church there um, baptize uh, and be the personal godfather of higher order births, children. And um, that seems to have influenced fertility. And then you can also see, you know, just any sort of policy that relates to kind of religious freedom or religious, you know, exemptions for various things. Um, these might impact fertility through that channel. That's interesting. When you say higher order of birth children, are you just talking about the number of children? Like, you know, if you have the seventh child, they're baptized by the leader of their church? Yeah. So it's not even the seventh. I think it's like the third. <laughs> so you don't have to go too high. And a lot of these uh, uh, policies really are uh, aimed at, you know, those second or third births, right? Because if you look at the share of um, married couples having one child, that seemed pretty constant, actually, even two maybe is is... Um, you know, constants, really couples aren't having three, right? And so that a lot of policies are targeting those, you know, so, so-called higher order births. Mm-hmm. I can see that in my personal experience, the jump from one child to two children was quite a big adjustment in terms of, I think, probably perhaps even more of an impact on our life than just having that first child. So I can see why that would be the, uh, the case. Sometimes people might have one, think it's okay, but the thought of going to two and realize if they realize the disruption that can, can tend to cause. And again, I think parenting overall, very much a, 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 on the plus side, really enjoy it, worthwhile endeavor. However, it does take up a lot of time. It's a lot of drain. There's expense, as you mentioned. Uh, just on, on the public policy thing, I'm interested in your thoughts about the, the limits of public policy and what we can do. Here in Canada, uh, within the past about two or three years, our federal government announced a plan to go to $10 a day daycare. Of course, daycare is one of the major expenses for children. So we're now, it's being phased in. Right now, daycare is about half the market price if you have a subsidized spot. So in our case, it's about $25 a day. It's going to further reduce. So that cost is getting cheaper. However, no surprise to you as an economist, when the price has gone down, the demand for daycare spots has gone up. Now, now people with really substantial waiting lists, including friends of mine who are putting their kids on a daycare waiting list while their uh, women are still pregnant. And uh, and so it'll be interesting when we can look back on this in a certain amount of time and try and evaluate what the effect of subsidized daycare in Canada was on fertility. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I do. No, this is something, um, you know, we were talking before having my first uh, child, my daughter, um, a year and a half ago, we were on daycare lists while I was still pregnant because it is pretty competitive in the States as well. Not even subsidized, right? It's just expensive and in high demand, um, which is which is great. But um, yeah, so childcare is actually really difficult is really difficult from like, if you're thinking like from a pronatal policy perspective. And I think there's a couple of reasons. And the main one is that um, sometimes it can be a cost. So it's it's often touted as a benefit to parents. It's often, you know, said that, hey, let's provide, you know, childcare in, in a lot of like Scandinavian countries, right, have, have pretty substantial allowances for this. Um, but sometimes it can be a cost from the perspective of parents too. Um, spending time with your kids is definitely something that in some cases is a benefit. And so when you're reducing time spent between parents and children and um, in sort of a one size fits all way, that can be pretty difficult. Um, and that might, might um, in, you might incur some 
um, unexpected costs there. And then also the quality um, is another concern. So as um, you know, maybe your listeners are aware, right, when you have sort of um, government, reg- highly regulated industries, um, you tend to actually see quality deteriorate. And this is a big concern for childcare because, um, I mean, and if you've ever known a woman who's dropped off her child at, at daycare, and it can be hard if you don't you know, really have faith in the quality of the institution. And so I think that those are two things um, to keep an eye on. And I would also say um, just empirically, you know, um, childcare is is definitely um, more available in Europe typically. And these are the countries that we see with the highest fertility gaps. So there doesn't seem to be a relationship between that specific policy. That doesn't mean that it is not the right thing to do. Like maybe it is. Um, I think that's a policy conversation that goes beyond economics. Um, But I think economics can help us make some of those, understand some of the facts, right? Yeah, an interesting note on this sort of the quality effect is one thing we saw when the government was phasing in these childcare subsidies, and as one might expect, in, in several Canadian provinces which were administering the subsidy, including my home province of Ontario, it seemed to be really brought in quite badly. Uh, there was a lot of confusion as to what exactly they were doing, what the uh, rules and regulations around getting the funding were going to be. And we did see a number of childcare centers you know, publicly to the media saying, we're not going to take the subsidy subsidy. We took a vote among the families that send our children here, and they wanted us to keep doing things the way we have been doing them, the way we want to do them. And there was something in the regulations that was going to interfere with the freedom because they've got a limit on what they can spend on certain categories or things like that. Uh, Of course, it's primarily in uh, more upscale uh, daycare facilities, I think, that cater to the wealthier families. At the lower end of the income scale, people are not able to be as selective about whether or not they take those subsidies. Why don't we talk about daycare? And of course, one of the reasons daycare is so important is because more women want to be active in the workforce while also raising children. One thing that's been in the news a lot uh, lately, uh, you know, certainly since the, the COVID-19 pan- pandemic, is the uh, the effect of w- remote work and how this is affecting things. Can you talk a little bit about how remote work affects uh, women's choices and women's fertility choices? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, man, COVID was, was such an interesting time. Um, uh, and from a research perspective, and um, basically, there's there's a famous paper that came out pretty early, I guess you could say, in COVID that said, hey, you know, it definitely the years of the pandemic um, were very hard for women who were working and had children um, because they were suddenly working from home, but also the daycares and the schools were closed, right? And so there's a lot of really difficult juggling that went on. And and you can see this reflected in a lot of survey data, right? It was just very brutal for, for those women. Um, and even, you know, if you were having a child, you know, they weren't getting the socialization, you know, you maybe weren't even allowed to have your partner in the hospital room with you when you were giving birth, just really kind of honestly, a lot of um, what sounds like traumatic experiences for women during this time. Um, But um, this paper argued and this, the silver lining is that now that we have this experience with remote work, um, because we had to, right, we kind of just like force this technology on everyone. And we saw that it does work in a lot of situations, right? Those, those meetings that were in person that could have been an email, now are emails, you know, thank goodness. And, and other things like that, other flexibility is, is now built into the system. Um, and so that actually in the long run might benefit women who tend to prefer, and this is one of the really strong findings from Claudia Golan's work in the gender wage gap literature, women just tend to prefer um, flexible schedules, um, whether or not that means working from home or whether or not that just means flexible hours in the office, like kind of I have as a professor, um, that both of those things, you know, whatever fits your family, but in general, that flexibility component is really important because the one thing about kids is that they're unpredictable, right? You don't know when they're going to get sick. You don't know when you're going to get sick. Um, you don't know when they're going to need you, especially on one day or another, one time or another. And so it can be really important to shift around your work schedule in order to, to meet those needs. Um, but yeah, I think um, we have yet to see uh, sort of a huge impact of remote work maybe on, on fertility or narrowing the fertility gap, but I'm hopeful that it's possible. I really am. Wonderful. That was great timing. You mentioned Claudia Golden, who's someone I'd like to talk about in the second half of our conversation, but now's a good time to take our break. Thanks for joining us on The Curious Task. I will be back in a few moments with Clara Piano. 
Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Ben Hobbs, Amy Willis, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to follow and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm your host, Matt Bufton. I'm talking today with Clara Piano. We're asking the question, what uh, does economic freedom have to do with fertility? The last conversation we had, last bit of our conversation before the break, Clara mentioned Claudia Golden, who is an economist who recently won the Nobel Prize. If you look at Clara's uh, work on this issue, uh, Claudia cited quite a bit. And I think this would be a great opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, an economist, a thinker people may not be familiar with. So, uh, Clara, can you tell us a little bit about who Claudia Golden is and her influence on your work? I would love to. Yes. So Claudia Golden, I think almost, you know, unanimously is just seen as um, a researcher. She's she's at Harvard currently as an economic historian, a researcher who um, really, really um, transformed our understanding of the relationship between women and work. And um, she's really interesting too, and I think a really good model for for young students because she comes at it from so many different angles. She has so many different types of paper from papers from studying like pharmacists to studying um, just um, uh, symphonies and a lot of different contexts, a lot of different time periods. But she's always really careful with her data and, and asking the, these questions about gender wage gaps or about female employment, female education, and things like that. And so recently, a lot of her research, um, this book I'm thinking of, Career and Family in particular, um, which is such a good, I would recommend it to anyone. It's a really a good summary of um, her findings. And she goes through, I think it's five generations, and basically just traces the relationship um, that women were able to 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 have or pursue their options in the family and the career space. So that's a little bit about Claudia Golden. Um, again, really, really encourage you to check out her work. Um, and she's also well known and specifically, um, we talked, this is where we were, were touching on before the break, um, by identifying this, um, kind of explaining the gender wage gap, I should say, um, by identifying this, this key component of temporal flexibility in work. So up to kind of before her research, a lot of um, researchers were kind of asking this question. It's a mystery, right? Why do we have this gap between, you know, average um, female earnings for full-time work and average male earnings for kind of similar jobs, full-time work? And she's the one who kind of cracked the code and said, hey, it looks like women are happy to take lower salaries on average in return, right, sort of a compensating differential in return for less strict hours, um, sometimes fewer hours. So um, that was, I think, really important. And um, that definitely a lot of the research I just uh, talked about has been was cited in her Nobel um, Prize as well, which is just excellent. Yeah. I think there's an interesting sort of aspect to what you said about the idea that women are happy to take uh, you know, lower compensation in return for that flexibility. I can imagine some critics of that sort of line of thinking saying, well, it's not that women are happy to, it's that women are compelled to or forced to because of the sort of you know, social structure. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. And, and uh, Golden does too. So she has a, a lot of papers um, Again, investigating this, you know, what part is discrimination, what part is voluntary and voluntary when it comes to um, bargaining and, and thinking about women working. And um, she really falls down on the side of it's this thing that she calls greedy work. So it's it's you can think about it as maybe involuntary in a sense, but it, it really isn't in in a strong in the strong sense of the word. So what she says greedy work is, is basically this, these high paying jobs, these really intense jobs um, where you don't have a lot of good substitutes. So you really are the only person who can push through this deal, for instance, or serve this client's needs. And um, basically it's greedy because it eats up a lot of your time. It requires a lot of your time and you are, you're willing to do it though, because you're getting compensated a lot for it, right? Most of us would look at, you know, a very demanding schedule and say, no, thank you, not for me. Unless, right, you were paying me a million, two million dollars, right? So we're really talking about these high, high earning. And that's what tends to these really high, high earning jobs tend to pull up that 
average for men, um, and and you find more men in these positions. Um, or, or actually, I should say, really more childless people in these positions, because another aspect of her work is that. Um, you can really describe the gender wage gap by saying it's really a motherhood wage penalty. So you find that a lot of the um, necessary flexibility in, in um, caregiving actually is driving a lot of these um, market choices. Um, and again, you know, we would like to, you know, kind of have it all. Maybe, maybe it would be better, right, if there is no penalty for taking a more flexible schedule. But it's the truth that people in general, whether or not they have children value flexibility. Um, and so it's just seen as a positive benefit. And if you want it as part of your kind of compensation package for your job, another part of your compensation is going to have to give, right? And usually that's salary where that flexibility is. So that's how I would respond. Um, again, you know, definitely not a perfect world, but it's it's intelligible, right? We can understand why women are making these decisions and why employers are making these decisions as well. So from some of the conversation we've had about uh, how people, and but especially women and mothers, value this flexibility in the workplace, uh, it's clear some of the, the benefits of remote work. Um, and yet I can imagine also some potential uh, problems with this. I mean, I remember discussions about the types of socializing that men and women may do after the workplace or sort of informal socializing outside of. It seems like remote work is going to have an issue on that. Uh, also, just the idea of perhaps if the trade-off is to work remotely for lower compensation, these are going to exacerbate the gender wage gap. So I'm curious if you think we're going to see this reflected in the economic data in the in the coming years as far as an increasing gender wage gap, and if so, if that's something we should be concerned about. Yeah, so it is absolutely true that remote work is not a panacea, right? It's not going to solve all of the problems um, that we've identified in, in promoting flexibility for work because there are costs. Um, it is absolutely true that, and I see this in a lot of my younger friends, um, you know, these people were really eager to go back into the physical workplace after COVID. Um, they did not like being home. They missed out on a ton of socialization, mentorship, um, just learning by just being in that experience in the room, right, where things were happening. And so um, I think that we absolutely, um, you know, when we know this from online teaching as well, right, there's just, there. these are different things. And so there are certain industries where um, remote work makes sense or certain jobs maybe where it makes sense and certain jobs where it doesn't. Um, in terms of the gender wage gap, one way to get at this question is with like the gig economy or gig work, because um, that's typically remote or at least it's more flexible, right? There's other things going on. And we do see um, some gaps, but this tends to be very much because the schedules are a little bit more customizable when you're in a gig, gig economy job, um, we see it a, a little bit smaller. So an example of this, like there is a gap between earnings of women and men with who drive Uber, but it tends to be because women don't want to drive those really high paying hours that are very late at night or in rougher neighborhoods, for instance, or just for very long periods of time, very long trips. And so... Um, again, I think just naturally because there's variation between men and women um, and certainly individual variation, which again is why it's hard to find this like one size fits all, you know, industrial policy that's going to be pro-family is that um, every family is going to have different solutions to the problem of um, work family compatibility when it comes to the temporal flexibility. Great. We've talked a fair bit about uh, you know the differences in, in work structure and other things between men and women in this last little bit. Uh, and of course, earlier on, we talked a lot about uh, women's uh, fertility goals, the actual sort of outcomes in terms of the number of children they have. As you mentioned, there's a problem in measuring men's fertility goals and also a problem perhaps in measuring the actual number of children that men do have. But is there anything that we know about this that you found through our research about how men's fertility goals may you know, be similar or maybe different from women's? Yeah. Um, so I think ideally we, we would measure both because a lot of fertility um, you know, happens with bargaining between two individuals. And so it would be nice to be able to observe both sides. There is really one paper that I think of when um, I think of this question that's called Bargaining Over Babies. Um, it's a very famous paper at this point, actually. And um, they look at um, when basically the timing of when um, – both partners, women and the man takes, a, you know, the first sentence I think is it takes a man and woman to have a child. Um, 
when they say that they would like to have a child and when that agreement occurs and whether or not that's likely to result in an actual birth. And they do find actually that it takes agreement, right? So it's not enough for just the woman to say, I want to have another baby. It's not enough for the man to say, I'd like to have another baby. You really need to see that agreement between both um, partners to then see the outcome, to, to see in the data, the outcome of another birth. Um, however, they do find a little bit of difference between men and women. So, which is exactly what we would expect from the economic standpoint, really, um, because a lot of the costs of pregnancy and, and early childhood are borne by women just for biological reasons. And so, um, women tend to be a little bit less likely to, um, want to have another child than men. And so, we can even say that when we're only focusing on women, we might be understating the fertility gap when we take into account both both partners, right? So both perspectives on ideal family size, for instance. Um, it doesn't look like there's a massive difference, but there definitely might be a little bit. Wonderful. So we've talked a little bit about some of the places that uh, that have greater or lesser fertility gaps. I'm curious if we can talk a little bit more about what makes these places different. You mentioned the fact that religion uh, can play a role in some cases. I imagine there's some some cultural factors going on. But in your research, are there a few things that really stand out between the places with the highest and the lowest fertility gaps? Yeah. So at a country level, um, you really do see larger fertility gaps in those countries. Like Italy is actually, unfortunately, a really good example and excess childlessness, which is if you look at the number of women who say when they're like 25, I'd like to have no no kids, you know, maybe pursue just a career or something else. And then the number of women who end up having no kids, it's very high. It's almost like 20%. Um, so very high rates of both fertility gaps and excess childlessness in countries like Italy. And part of the explanation, this is not my work, this is others, but part of the ex explanation seems to be economic uncertainty. So our paper actually doesn't uh, focus on this a lot. Well, I'll talk about the approach um, that we take, but um, another really important thing to think about is job security. And so while temporal flexibility might be really important, um, also just knowing that you'll be able to support the child in the long run, right? Because children are, are very long run investments, right? They're with you till the end. And, um, and so it's, it's something that you as a parent are going to be taking into account is what are the job prospects, right? For the future. Um, am I able to get this promotion or have some job security before I, you know, really grow this, this large family? So that's probably one explanation is there's just the labor market in a lot of those countries is really, um, unfavorable, I would say, to um, sort of security, but also just, you know, getting your foot on the ladder to begin with and getting that work experience. Um, the one that we focus on, though, so the thing of the, the driver of fertility gaps that we focus on in the United States, in the particular U, um, U.S. states, is variation in economic freedom. And so we do this because um, not so much because we think it's kind of capturing this uncertainty component, but because it's capturing this choice component, which again gets back to their this idea that there's not a one size fits all solution for every family. Every family balancing work and, fa and um, family is going to look very different. And so really the best way to capture this ability to balance would be something with, you know, choice, right? Where is maximal choice? Where are men and women able to choose career paths that they themselves think are going to fit their other goals as well, right? Because we know that, you know, people tend to try to achieve all their goals. And so having that choice element, I think, is actually really important. So we are the first paper to draw that out. I think that's really interesting. Uh, I have become increasingly interested in this subject personally since having kids. Uh, and I think it's actually something uh, at a societal level we probably underrate a little bit. Uh, and I think maybe part of that was a cultural bias in the past towards only talking about the good things about having kids. Nowadays, if you tell someone you're having a kid, they might say something like, well, you're never going to sleep again and we should go out for a beer next Thursday because I'm never going to see you for the next 12 years. And perhaps we focus a little bit too much on some of those sort of negative aspects, which are real. And I mean, you know, I would like to go for more beers with my friends, but I also, you know, need to and value uh, spending that time at home with our family. 
I'm curious. So, I mean, on on the one hand, we've talked about the fact that uh, that uh, you know programs that try to incentivize, basically, pay people to have families are not that important. And as classical liberals, I think we can agree we don't want to be going down any sort of path where anyone feels coerced in any way to have more kids than they would uh, freely choose to do. Are there any efforts that you're aware of to sort of convince people that this is something that might be of value to them? And do we know anything about how effective those sort of voluntary, you know, convincing rather than coercion rather than payment efforts might be? Yeah, no. So just to your first part, I mean, this is economists, this is our bread and butter, right? Choice between competing ends. There's too much good stuff, you know, when kids enter the world, you can't do it all. Um, and so that's absolutely true. And we might have overcorrected as a society. That's, you know, that is what it is. But basically in terms of making a more persuasive um, case. So yes, this is the the path that I think we see governments starting with right now. Um, so China, again, is, a, is an example. Um, Korea, um, a lot of these, these kind of like um, countries with who are leaning towards these even more strong pro-family policies really start out this way. And just with kind of propaganda, you might call it the Soviet Union did this as well, right? Instead of saying, and it's interesting to note, right, because decade ago, China was actually giving the opposite message, right, to its people of saying, one child is the best route, you know, then you, you know that you'll be able to kind of really invest in them. They'll be, quote, high quality, all of this kind of stuff. And then they changed course. Soviet Union did the same thing. They told women, get in the, the workforce, get to the factory, you know, don't worry about kids. We'll raise them. We'll, we'll take care of them. And then very quickly, right, you realize that you have a problem. So I think it's very easy, actually, even without coercion. Of course, there was a lot of coercion as well. But even without coercion, I think you can make the opposite case as a government with propaganda, right? Have fewer children. Um, I don't think it's as easy to make the case persuasively as a government, have more children. Um, and we see some instances of this. So South Korea um, kind of famously um, has these like love cruises or just like other sorts of messaging. Um, China now too, right? And Singapore is another example um, where there's, you know, a lot of just positive um, reinforcement of, of larger families, maybe two, maybe three, right? Oh, consider how happy this would be. Um, you know, don't you love your partner, right? All of this kind of stuff. And um and I think, it, so it's difficult because I actually think that this is another reason the fertility gap is a really important metric because if, you know, we're coming at this from a classical liberal approach and um, this actually gives us kind of a non-paternalistic threshold. So it tells us the number of, of children that women would like to have regardless of any change in values, right? Which could be then, you know, which also gives us kind of a, a strong threshold for, for coercion, measuring coercion away from those, those preferences. And I think that's really useful um, for a couple of reasons. And the first is that I, again, I just, as I said, I don't think the government is actually effective at persuading. I don't think that's just like the role, the thing that it specializes in. Um, I think that a lot of other institutions, like religious institutions, educational institutions, quite frankly, are, I think, a, a big one here. Um, and then just in general, right, culture, media, um, those are, are way better, way better situated to make these persuasive cases to people. Um, and then also we have this um, issue with basically it's really, it's difficult to, you know, to change values and to, to have women um, kind of change their preferences. It's unpredictable in the way that it will go. And it's unpredictable what would be the right answer for a specific woman. Um, and so you often see these countries, and this is more of a slippery slope argument, you off, often see these countries kind of say, oh, I'm frustrated because the, you know, the soft kind of like, um, persuasion didn't work as well. So now let's go to more of a stick approach, which you saw with the Soviet Union. Um, and so I think a better approach would be to say, well, the fertility gap actually shows us that women desire to have above replacement fertility. That's already in place. So that would solve a lot of problems for countries, right? If you were actually just meeting the goals. In fact, I think it would solve all of them if you were just meeting your fertility goals. So a more constructive approach, I think, would be, okay, what's in our policy environment that's erecting barriers to to not achieving sort of ideal fertility for these women? Um, 
And so there's a lot of things to look at there. There's a really cool new paper that just came out that showed kind of the implicit tax rates that European societies have on, on parenthood and the transfers that, that parents make to their children that are just absolutely massive, right, um, that really do are kind of subsidizing um, the state because they're creating future taxpayers. And so things like this to look at, okay, what are what are the ways in which there are just barriers to having kids, right? What are the taxes right now? We don't need to think about subsidies or persuasion quite yet, I think. Um, so that would be my answer. Um, does that does that answer your question? Yeah, no, I think that's a great great answer, and I think it's nice to get away from that paternalistic idea of like the you know paternalism seems uh, the appropriate uh, word here to use <laughs> in terms of the state trying to tell us have have fewer kids, no, have more kids, and of course uh, what we want is a society of free individuals making choices that they feel are the best for them, and this takes us down that path, and I think that that's wonderful. Our time has just about wound down, uh, but we do like to let the guest have the last word on this. And, uh, you know, I realize that, of course, you're an economist, you're looking at the data and what it tells us, and, and maybe the data can't always tell us what will happen going forward. However, I'm curious if you're willing to sort of make a prediction from the time you've spent looking at this fertility gaps, we see them, we've got these interesting measurement, we know that women would like to have on average about one more, a little bit less than one more child than they have. If you imagine yourself in sort of the end of your career, which of course you're just getting started out, do you have any thoughts of where that trends, where the data is going to lead us? And do you think this is a problem? And I say problem because of course it's a, a gap between what people want and, and what people are having. Do you think this is something that we're going to see narrow? Is it going to expand? Is it going to stay the way it is right now? Yeah. Um, so what I would say is that um, there, are, there are definitely things that are promising. Um, but if you look at just the raw numbers in terms of population projection and um, just the demographic, honestly, um, demography is not too hard to predict because you do have pretty good estimates of births and deaths and things like that. Um, it does look like we're going to see a lot more of a crunch and from a population perspective, a lot of more problems with underpopulation and aging societies in general, right? Japan is an example. Germany is an example right now. Um, you might see a lot of political consequences, right, to um, policymakers who would like to increase immigration in response or, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more tension politically and from an aging population standpoint. Um, that being said, um, I, I do think that there's something very promising in that um, children are an experience good. So, um, and, and we were talking about this a little bit. And so I think that once you, um, it's hard to understand like the, even the benefits and the costs of, of having a child until you undergo, right, that experience. And so um, if there's any way, right, for countries or for just individual communities, right, or for people who are concerned about population growth, think about um, how you're actually just exposing people, right, to, to the good of children, right, it's in the economic terms. Um and think about kind of the learning that could could go on there and also just like the the shared experience, right? And and sharing that knowledge with others. I think that that's actually really powerful. I think um, as a teacher, as well as a researcher, right? These are conversations I've had a lot with young women um, and thinking about, well, being open to the fact that, you know, this is something that a lot of people have valued right throughout history. Maybe I might value it. Maybe I might try it. And maybe I might be open to being surprised, right? At how much I enjoy it. Um, or you know, maybe not, and that's okay. Um, but I think that there's actually something very promising there that by the sheer kind of effect of being around children and listening to parents, and we see this statistically being in a community that high has high fertility, right? That's, you're more likely to also have high fertility. You see it can be done. You see kind of the, the fruits of it. And so um, this could be a promising path, right? Just kind of sharing those, those positive experiences. But yeah, so in general, I think the macro level could get worse, but I think at the micro level, right, with small communities and societies, um, a lot of good things could happen because I, I never want us to forget it has never been better, I think, in, in a lot of objective ways to have children. Um, infant mortality, maternal mortality, is so low, right? So you, you don't have to undergo that heartbreaking loss that a lot of people historically, right, had to undergo. Um, you don't have to worry about seeing your children, right, for the majority of the world, seeing them starve or struggle. They'll have an education, right? You get to share a lot of the 
beautiful things in life with your kids these days. And, and that's just an awesome thing. And so also remembering, right, the gratitude piece of, you know, there's a lot that our ancestors, you know, would have just been, been dying to have um, in our world today, right, with the in- innovations and infant spaces and things like that. So yeah, just to end on a positive note there, I do think that there's a lot of promise. I think that is a lovely positive note to end on. Clara Piano, thanks for joining me on The Curious Task. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Sabine Alchidak and Eric Sege. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vaupenfjord. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. I'm Matt Bufton. Thanks again for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.